I don't have any problem with Democrats or Republicans per se. I don't have any problem even with two party. What I'm saying is there's something wrong with this system where nobody's satisfied and yet the two current parties are guaranteed to continue to be the only two, regardless of how dissatisfied we are. That is the voice of Catherine Gell, the co-author with Michael Porter of The Politics Industry. The subtitle is How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. And she is our guest on this week's edition of CFO Bookshelf. Bruce, uh, welcome back. We've been a little bit on a hiatus, right? Have, have you enjoyed your time off? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely been relaxing. We're, uh, you know, we're on that, that stretch of where we guarantee a new show every time we record one. So I think we're uh, now back in the saddle and ready to get going again. Now, you didn't pick up on that. When I said we t- took some time off, you still had to work your 50, 60 hours a week as a CFO, <laughs> And so, so we were just talking about the podcast itself. I mean, we're like Hollywood, right? I mean, you do a few shows like Johnny Carson, um, uh, some of the other guys. I mean, you have to take a few weeks off here and there. So we are back and I'm looking forward to our guest today, Catherine Gill, who is the, by the way, former CEO of Gill Foods based in Uh, I want to say Germantown, Wisconsin. I did not ask that. I know that's where the original headquarters were. Uh, She sold her company back in 2015, and uh, she's a co-author of The Politics Industry with Michael Porter, the Michael Porter, the Elvis Presley of Harvard. And when I mentioned this book to you in an email, Bruce, you kind of raised an eyebrow. Now, again, this was an email. So how is it that I would have thought you raised an eyebrow when I mentioned I get to interview Catherine of the book, The Politics Industry? Why would I be saying that? Do you remember what you said in email back to me? No, I, I think, um, you know, right now, um, I know that there's, um, you know, some, some different, some different ways of looking at politics right now. And um, while in, in, in the past, I've definitely taken a, um, you know, kind of down the middle, down the middle position on, on certain political things, as you and I've talked, there's certain things that we're talking about right now that um, I'm just not okay being quiet about anymore. And sometimes I, I view, um, <clears throat> I, I view a, a, a centrist type of a position um, as the right way to do it. But as it stands right now, that's just, I'm not prepared to, to sit quietly on certain topics. And Bruce, we, we're on the same page. And I even mentioned this to Catherine. I am apolitical, which I tend not to be political at all. Um, now, I do like what our founding fathers believed in. I do believe in the separatists who fled uh, England to, I believe it was Holland, was it? Uh, The Netherlands. And then they fled there to the U.S. and wound up in Plymouth. I've read the 40-year diary of uh, Governor Bradford, William Bradford. 
So, yeah, when I say I'm not political, I believe in the things that they believed in, but I'm not a political person per se. So, the reason this intrigued me, this discussion, is A, Catherine, she's a business person, former CEO, big company, and then you see Michael Porter's name, and then I opened up the book, the Kindle version on uh, on, uh, on Amazon, excuse me, and I thought, this looks really intriguing. And then I read the book, and it is nonpartisan all the way. Uh, it's even a, there's, it's, there's multiple civics lessons in the book as well. She has a very innovative idea. The bottom line is, the heart of the book is there's lack of competition because you basically have a two-party system. And by the way, Washington, Adams, and Monroe addressed that Years ago, 200 plus years ago, they, they were concerned about this entrenched two-party system and, and then lack of innovation. So lack of competition, lack of innovation. Catherine brings that up. She brings up those issues. And then I'm not going to give it away. She has a solution. And finally, Bruce, finally, Bruce, what do we believe in? We believe in continuous learning. I mean, we, we, we don't want to just be these numbers people, strategy people, uh, systems people, we need to be, I mean, we're liberal arts people, right? Um, I don't want to lead the witness, but that's where my head is when I got excited about interviewing Catherine. And then I think you thought, oh, that makes sense. I did um, there. And I think, you know, looking deeper into this, the the, the title of the book, uh, Politics Industry, um, there made me more comfortable that this was going to be how how the the um, the political machine ties into business success, and so that and tied in with the um, with our focus on continuing to learn, continuing to keep the mind open, getting out of just the data and getting out of the minutia and getting into more macro topics. Uh, it, it seemed like a natural fit for, for what we like to talk about and how we want to um, and who we want to present to the folks that listen to us. One last thing about Catherine. Oh my gosh, she is a class act. I mean, everyone we've had on the show, we're, we're a young show. Our audience is slowly growing. And I keep thinking, oh, this person's so kind. This person's so generous. Catherine just blew me away very generous, giving of her time. Every time I would pay her a compliment, she'd hit me with two more right back at me. And so I, this is just a very class act. And I, she's a fellow Midwesterner as, as well. And by the way, not no slams to people on the East Coast or West Coast or beyond the U.S. I got to be, boy, I want, don't want to be, <laughs> I screwed up there. But hey, I, lo- I love the Midwest. So uh, even though it's hot, I uh, hate the humidity this time of the year. But incredible individual, and anyone that even wants to think about interviewing her down the road, you're going to enjoy it. She will make you feel like this is the most important 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes uh, there is. I mean, she, she cares, and she's very, again, just a dy- dynamic person. Well, this sounds great. So I guess we need to uh, want to go ahead and jump into that interview. So now we're going to be listening to Catherine Gale the co-author of The Politics Industry. So, Catherine, first of all, congratulations on the book. I think it came out two weeks ago, June 23rd, thereabouts. 
And I know you don't know the exact count, but are sales going pretty well so far? Yes, we are really happy. What's interesting is we had pretty good visibility in the pre-sale timeframe, and now we have no visibility. Uh, But we did about five times as much in pre-sales as our publisher had said was, you know, expected. So we're really happy. And look, here's the thing, Mark. I want to sell tons of books, no question, because we want this word to get out because the democracy belongs to all of us and we should all, you know, as many of us as possible, be engaged in changing it. And also because all the proceeds of the book are going to a not-for-profit for this work. Oh, I did not so realize therefore, that. So therefore, yes, I'm for book sales, but most importantly, I'm for impact. And last, no, Saturday night after the fireworks, I checked my email and in, and in my email was a very simple subject line. It said, I'm in. And then in the body, it said, the person said, what are the next steps? And at the end of our book, in, I write the conclusion, and at the end of the conclusion, I say, Michael and I are all in, are you? So this person was responding to that question, got back to me with that very compelling email. And on Independence Day, it was so exciting. And I Googled him, and he is really someone whose work I respect greatly. And I'm very excited to know that for him, the book took him to the place that is required for enough of us if we want to change how democracy works. Well, you and Michael did that masterfully, and we're going to hit that in just a a few minutes. One other thing over the weekend, and and by the way, we're recording this right after the uh, July 4th holiday. I did go through a few of your interviews, and are are you, you're either fully energized or you're fatigued or tired How's how's the last couple of weeks been going? Because it seems like you're everywhere. You, you've been through a lot of interviews, uh, of course, this podcast, other podcasts. How are, how are you hanging in there? I love this. I'm so excited, again, because I'm driven only by the book and the book sales because that's a step on the way to change. Uh, but being driven by the challenges that the country faces, both, you know, the whole country together, and then the individual situations of, you know, people and families in the country and what they're facing. And I'm driven by seeing us live up to the potential that we have. That just brings forth energy, especially now that that concern is matched up with an, an actionable plan to to deliver on the promise of the democracy. Like, so it's not a frustrated energy. It's a very focused energy. I, I also want to say, I love local talk radio. It is so much fun. I've been talking to stations around the country and there are very interesting, you know, people who host these shows and they have their own personality and they're just amazing. The other day I was at 7.15 a.m., And the host was saying, yes, this is Kathy Gale. And here we are. We like to 
rise up and wise up. And I thought, I need to wake up to this kind of energy every day. Well, I'm enjoying it, especially the four or five that I've heard so far. You are from, well, we're fellow Midwesterners, Missouri here, Wisconsin for you. So we grew up uh, in the breadbasket of America. You're a third generation uh, in your family business, third generation. You were CEO. You eventually uh, became the CEO, sold the business, but you were a business person. Again, grew up in rural uh, Wisconsin. Here you are. I mean, you're a business person. How did you go down this journey and, and then, then meeting Michael Porter and then creating this book? I just find that entirely fascinating. It's even fascinating to me, Mark. Uh, it's, I think, very serendipitous. And my mother long ago said that success, she sent me this little, you know, saying, and it was something like success happens when uh, preparation meets opportunity. And I think that, you know, the things that I have done in my life got me to a certain point. And then there was, you know, there are opportunities that come before you. And the question is, do you take advantage of them or not? So here's the story. I I have uh, mostly a business background, but I also spent some time in the political world. I worked in economic development uh, it, for Mayor Richard, Mayor Richard M. Daley in Chicago. I worked on a presidential campaign in 2008 while I was running my company. I was raising money. I served in the Obama administration um, in a Senate-confirmed position. So on a board. And so I've had a lot of experience and I was deeply concerned just about the direction of the country as, you know, the CEO of a, of a company, I'm looking at what's going on as a parent, I'm looking at what's going on. And I was really thought that Washington DC was failing us. So I got involved in candidates. I got involved in policy. I got involved in culture And I discovered that none of those things were making any difference. And eventually, I read a book by Mickey Edwards, former Republican congressman from Oklahoma, and it was called The Parties Versus the People. And the light bulb went off for me. Mickey said, it's the system. And I've never looked back from that because I was always a systems thinker. I don't know why I didn't see politics that way on my own. But once Mickey told me, I couldn't unsee it. So I was now engaged in what we needed to do to change the system. But I was engaged as an individual, and I wasn't, you know, at that time planning to write a book or or work to necessarily lead this movement uh, as one of the leaders, of course. But I, after I sold my company, I was fundraising, and I would have these meetings with very wealthy people who I believed wanted to see change. And this is just a small story, it's sort of a composite story. At the end of what I thought was a really great meeting, as I'm thinking in my head, I need to raise my ask. You know, I need to ask mm-hmm. this person for $5 million instead of $1 million because this meeting is going so well. The person, before I could get the words out of my mouth, would say to me, oh, this is so great, Catherine, count me in for $25,000. 
And I would think, how is this possible? It's a good thing I sold cheese sauce better than I'm selling these ideas. You know, I wouldn't have had a successful business because this is $25,000 is not commensurate with the job that needs to be done. And it also doesn't do justice to the return, right? which is where the question came. I said, you know what? I'm not making the business case for investment. People are familiar with investing in businesses and lots of people are familiar with investing in candidates and maybe even investing in some policy advocacy work, but not in structural change. So I realized I wanted to write up the business case for investment, make this thesis for engagement. When I say investment, I don't just mean dollars. I mean, time, focus, networks, et cetera. And I thought I would write it up with the five forces, which is the traditional classic tool for understanding competition in any industry. And the reason I was able to do that is because back when I was still running my company, I did a classic strategy project where I used the five forces for my food manufacturing company. So that was your idea. Oh, sorry, Mark. No, that that was your idea, right? Because that's genius. Yeah, right. To use the five forces was my idea because I had already done it, which is to say when I was doing my company project, it's almost like my brain split in two. I was on one side worried all about my company. It was a fabulous, fascinating, strategic project. And then on the other side, I was doing a parallel analysis of what I immediately began to call the politics industry. I said, oh my goodness, all of this is the same in politics. And I have to serve my customers and they don't, or they only have to serve some of their customers. And if I don't serve my customers, new competitors come in. Oh, look at the duopoly in politics and no new, no new competitors come in. So I was running the five forces analysis. Essentially, what you see in the book today is not different than what I had done already back in 2013. And I, and so that was there in my head, but I, it was more fascinating to me than anything I planned to write about. But after, again, these challenges of getting business people into engaged in change, I thought they were missing in action. I decided I should write it up. And fortunately for me, I knew Michael Porter. And so I realized that as thrilled as I was with the ideas and the analysis and the prescription for change, there was going to be an uphill battle of getting outreach and acceptance of these ideas. So I asked Michael to join me really as a validator. And indeed it was because the five forces had never been used for politics, but Michael had invented the five forces. So for him to add his name to the work as a, as my co-author really gave this work legitimacy out of the gate And that's key to success. Having the right ideas is very nice. I mean, it's necessary, but you have to get people to believe they're the right ideas. And so our partnership has been really very productive. And I am grateful for that serendipity relative to this work. I want to get to the heart of the book. And I'm going to, what I'm going to do in a few minutes is throw out just some concepts uh, that I gained from it, some takeaways. But before we do that, the first couple of chapters I thought were laid out. And by, and by the way, this is a very easy, accessible uh, read. 
And in fact, you can almost read it. I read it essentially in one setting. I mean, I, it went fast. So, but there are three, Fantastic. there are three really big aha moments. And we're going to go through these pretty fast. The first one is think back. I want you to put back your CEO hat on Catherine. And when you were running uh, Gal Foods, if your customers had been dissatisfied for whatever reason, poor quality, poor, poor, you know, you name it, uh, turnaround time, delivery time, et cetera, what are they going to do? W- what will those customers do if they're not being taken care of? Those customers will do what customers in free markets can do, which is they will choose another provider, another supplier. They will exercise the choice and the options that they have in the free market to select a provider that meets their needs. And then I'll lose that business. And that's really a key to how healthy competition works. And see, going back to the 1950s when our parents were young, there was this trust in the federal government upwards to 73%, over 70%. And in the book, you mentioned this, and by the way, you have a graph on this too. Uh, As of now, it's somewhere at or below 20%. So it's like your customers that you just mentioned can go away, but we we can't. So what in the world is going on? I mean, again, that's a huge drop, 73. I was shocked when I saw that. I thought, well, maybe it's in the 50s. And we gone from 50 to, to 20, but no, 73% back in the late 50s. And of course, that would have been during the Ike uh, time period, I believe. So what's going on, Catherine? Yes, Mark, not only do people not have trust in the government, they're also completely dissatisfied with what the government is achieving. Uh, for example, with Congress, we have disapproval ratings ranging from 70 to 90% of the public. And in any other industry, this large, as large as the politics industry, you know, $16 billion industry, and this thriving, you know, politicians and all the people in that industry are doing well in terms of wealth and power and their organizations are growing. In any other industry, this large, this thriving, with those levels of customer dissatisfaction, some entrepreneur would see it as a new fabulous new business opportunity and would create a new competitor responding to what the customers want. But that doesn't happen in politics because it turns out that both sides of the duopoly, the Democrats and the Republicans actually do work together very well in one particular way. And that is to create an or optimize around the rules of the game in order to protect themselves jointly from new competition. I often like to share with people one of my daughter's favorite jokes, which is to say, you know, Congress isn't broken, it's fixed. Mm -hmm. Which just gets at this idea that the rules are being made by the players in the game, and those rules are being made to serve the political industrial complex, and they're not being designed to serve who should be the most important customers, which are the citizens. 
So when you have a mismatch in an industry where you don't have healthy competition, then you can have a situation where the customers are not well served. Now, let me break in to my own thoughts here for a moment just to say something. I don't have any problem with Democrats or Republicans per se. I don't have any problem even with two parties. I'm not saying that if we had four parties, that would be exactly perfect, you know, and would change all of our our problems. What I'm saying is there's something wrong with this system where nobody's satisfied and yet the two current parties are guaranteed to continue to be the only two, regardless of how dissatisfied we are. So we have to open up competition so that if they do what we want, no problem. They can keep, you know, if they solve problems, they can keep going. But if they don't, then we'll need to have other choices to force performance into the politics industry. Another quick takeaway, and again, it's part of the setup in the book. Consultants are known, were teased for being famous for the two-by-two matrix. Uh-huh. But you've got, you've, there's a great one in the book. It's on, on, on the x-axis, you've got strengths, and then, on, and then you also have uh, weaknesses. And then on the y-axis, you've got improving and deteriorating. And up in the upper right-hand corner, you have entrepreneurship, where it's a strength and improving. But in the lower quadrant, where it's a weakness and deteriorating, guess what? You've got the political system. Again, I just thought that was brilliant. Now, you have some other some other uh, entities and ideas and concepts in that in that two-by-two uh, two matrix. But again, that is outstanding. And what what my big takeaway there was, again— we're supposed to be this great country, but where is the innovative thinking? So that's not really a question, but more just an observation um, as, as, as I'm going through some of these, these key concepts in the early chapters of the book. And there's, there's well, one, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I remember the first time I saw that matrix and saw the political system as the, you know, greatest weakness and and getting worse faster than any other element of our nationwide competitiveness. It's not that I didn't know that was true, but to see the agreement of all of the people surveyed, meaning we're all thinking the same thing, we're all thinking that our political system is completely broken. Wow. If we're all thinking that, why aren't we all doing something about it? Because we don't know what to do. And we don't know why it's broken. So we don't know how to fix it. And so when I uh, started on this work and, and you know, everything that I do now, there are two pieces. We want to tell people what's wrong, why it is the way it is, but only so we can also say how it could be different. And what we have to do, we don't want to just illuminate the problem. We want to illuminate the problem in service of having people understand and buy into the solution so that they will be motivated to do what needs doing to get that solution to come to pass. There's one other aha, and this was so good. I had to stop what I was doing. I opened up Excel and took some notes, but social security the highway system, civil rights, 
Medicare welfare reform, and that range that date ranges from 1935 to 1966, very bipartisan. Then you get into 2010 and beyond, you got the Affordable Care Act, uh, Dodd-Frank legislation, and then the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, highly partisan. That was a huge aha, Catherine. Now, a critic may say, well, there is a reason for the bipartisan support. I... No, I think things were different uh, 40, 50, uh, 60 years ago. And again, just the whole concept of bipartisan support of key landmark legislation, a huge key point. And the person who said earlier, I'm in, um, they probably thought after they read that, they thought, I'm really in. Yeah. Once again, you've pointed out some facts that I also find very compelling, which is we can't just have feelings about our political system. We have to look at what's actually happening and come to grips with it. And what we see is that both sides are guilty of prioritizing the growth of their industry and their partisan political advantage over solving problems. So the only time we do anything big these days is when one party has enough power to do it on their own. And nobody anymore sees a connection between working in a bipartisan fashion and getting reelected, which is the real problem because in all our jobs, you know, when we run companies and many of your listeners are involved in the management of companies, we have to make sure that we're incenting the behavior that we want to see. And what has happened in our politics industry is we're incenting the behavior we see. There's no question. But we're not incenting the behavior we want and need to see to move the country forward. So, Catherine, I want to hit some key terms and takeaways from the book. And, and I'm going to have all I have nine, I have a three by three grid, and I'll have these in the show notes. I'm not going to hit all these, but there is one section of the book. I would, first of all, my, my history, I, I guess I've forgotten some of it, but Ross Perot. I remember those those charts and graphs, and I also remember Dana Carvey, who did a great <laughs> Ross Perot back on uh, Saturday Night Live in the day. But you mentioned him and specifically the spoiler problem. What is the spoiler problem in this business of politics? I'll, I'll go to the punchline first. The spoiler problem is the single greatest reason why we don't have any new competition outside Democrats and Republicans in politics because it's the structural barrier to to that new competition. So here's how it works. Right now, in any race of more than two people, the winner might have the most votes, but they're not required to have a true majority. So you could split a three-way race, essentially, three ways, and one person will eke out a win at 34% with the other two people each getting 33%. With this dynamic, that means that in, whenever you have more than two candidates, a third candidate who comes in and isn't considered likely to win is immediately tagged as a spoiler, as in you, the third candidate, are going to take votes away from the candidate you're most similar to 
and you're going to inadvertently help elect the candidate you like the least. So, for example, in 2016, in the presidential race, people were told, oh, you must not vote for Jill Stein because she's on the left and you'll take votes away for Hillary Clinton and spoil the election for her and inadvertently help elect Donald Trump. And on the right, you weren't supposed to vote for Gary Johnson, the libertarian, because you'd spoil the election for Trump. Now, if we go back to Ross Perot in 1992, he was often considered a spoiler. Um, But recent research uh, by Nate Silver of 538 shows that he drew from both parties equally and really didn't spoil the election for either. But the interesting part about Ross Perot is even though the spoiler problem exists out there, he ran anyway. Most new competition never even bothers because they know they'll just be a spoiler or people will be said to be wasting their votes. And when Ross Perot ran, the conventional wisdom, in addition to that he was a spoiler, is that he lost. And so there you go, he lost. And and he didn't have any impact. But what's really fascinating- but he, he did, is didn't he? He had a huge impact. With healthy competition- you alter the outcomes no matter who wins, which is to say that Ross Perot ran on those charts about reducing the debt and the deficit. And that created a political, that with his 19% of the electorate, created a political imperative that affected the behavior of both Republicans and Democrats in that Clinton administration. And Because of that, they knew they needed to solve or do something around the debt and deficit, or else Perot's 19% risked becoming a much larger uh, force in the next elections. So competition on the debt and deficit forced that issue. In fact, Ross Perot died last year. Paul Begala, who was one of Clinton's advisors, wrote an op-ed at Perot's death, and he said that without Perot and his 19% of the electorate, it's unlikely that they would have taken on the debt and deficit. So the benefit of healthy competition is less about changing who wins and more about changing what the winners do. And here's a sad thing that you brought out in your book. So he was allowed to be in the debates in 1992, but 1996, he gets shut out, doesn't he? Right. So We've talked about how the duopoly works together behind the scenes to rig the rules of the game to protect themselves from new competition. And that's essentially what's happened with the presidential debates is that they supposedly, well, not supposedly, there is technically a way that a third candidate could make it onto the debate stage, but they've set the hurdle so high that practically it just is never going to happen. So that's one of the ways they keep the duopoly intact. Lack of competition, lack of innovation. I want to get into your solution, which is incredibly creative. But before we do so, let's tee it up. Uh, You talk about in it for themselves, and you've got this Venn diagram that you uh, mentioned in the book. Tell us what that that Venn diagram, there are two circles. They're they're apart. They should be together. What's, What's that mean, in it for themselves? Right. You know how you said that you like to think in these two by two matrices? Yes. And I think of the world in a Venn diagram. You could give me sort of any problem and I would come up with a Venn diagram because I think the challenge is that when things are going right, we often have a connection 
that shouldn't exist but does, or we have a connection that needs to exist and doesn't. So here's the case in our current political system. Right now, if you take one circle and you say this is Congress acting, a congressperson acting in the public interest, and then the other circle is the likelihood that that congressperson is going to get reelected, and there is no connection between those two circles, meaning if that congressperson does their job the way we, the citizens, need them to, and they solve problems in the public interest, they're actually less likely to get reelected. That's a huge design problem. We'd never, you know, run our companies or even our, our homes in that way. So what we need to do in politics is figure out why those connections are misset and then figure out what is in our power to do to change them, which is an important note. In our book, we do not propose things that are super powerful, but that we could just never make happen. This is a realistic business person's book. We propose only things that are powerful and achievable. Which leads us to the final five voting concept. Explain it. What is the final five voting? Con- I, I Again, I think this is brilliant. So final five voting is our name in this book, and it's beginning to be adopted, you know, around the country for our proposed system of voting innovation. And let's remember the goal of our work is not necessarily to change who gets elected, not necessarily to have a certain number of parties. It is to increase dramatically the likelihood that Congress delivers results in the public interest. So we're all about results. And in order to get results in the public interest, we need to connect delivering those results with the likelihood of getting reelected. And how we do that is by changing how we vote, by changing essentially the rules of getting elected and reelected. We have two major problems with our rules. One is, uh, the party primary, it pushes people further to the right and to the left on both sides, and then they can't come together in legislating because they can lose their next party primary if they do. The second problem we have is that because there's never any new competition, we don't have any accountability for the fact that they don't solve the problems. So if we can change how we vote to get results and accountability, and a side benefit, you also get innovation in there. So to get results, innovation, and accountability, the combination is something I call free market politics, which is the best of what free markets deliver, results, innovation, and accountability. Then we've really done something to alter the likelihood that that our country will be back on track in an upward trajectory. And here's here's what we do in Final Five Voting. It's a package of two changes. First, let's get rid of the broken party primary system that pushes each side too far to the extreme. Instead, we will have a single ballot nonpartisan primary. Everybody runs on the same ballot, no matter their affiliation, everybody votes using that same ballot. There's not a Democratic primary and a Republican primary. Then when the votes are counted, After the primary polls close, the top five finishers advance to the general election. So it's called a top five primary. 
Then the second thing we do is in the general election, we now take those five candidates and we have a you know, diverse and dynamic competition between the primary and the general. And when we go vote in November, we're going to rank our candidates all the way from, wow, this is my first choice. I love this candidate. I really can't wait for them to be my congressperson down to your fifth choice, something along the lines of over my dead body. Do I want this person to win? And that's, that's great to get to do that. Um, And by the way, you don't have to rank all of them if you don't have an opinion on every one of them. That's fine. But the key, the key benefit of ranking the candidates is that it eliminates the spoiler and wasted vote problem we talked about earlier, which is to say you can vote for whoever you want as your first choice and your vote will never be wasted and it will never accidentally help elect the person you like the least which means that there's no barrier to entry in the system for candidates. Ross Perot could run with no problem. Howard Schultz could have run. Mike Bloomberg could have run. Kanye West could run. Justin Amash could have run without being said that they were going to be spoilers. And then uh, after the polls close, you use a series of instant runoffs to elect the candidate who has the broadest appeal to the most number of voters. The combination of top five primaries and ranked choice voting in general elections is what we call final five voting. And it connects the two halves of the Venn diagram. It connects a congressperson, meaning someone from the, uh, from the House of Representatives or a senator, it connects their acting in the public interest with the likelihood that they're going to get reelected. Now that is transformational. And it means that the general election is more important than the primary. It means that votes are more, more important than money. And it means that senators and Congress people are accountable to everyone in their district, to a much larger percentage of people in their district than they currently are, where they're really only answering to a small, tiny portion of party primary voters. So it's really an amazingly powerful initiative. And the good news is that it's achievable. The constitution, it's very small. It fits in our pockets, right? We have the pocket constitution and it only says very, it says very little about how we actually vote. It delegates to the states, the ability to make all those rules, which means which, that the state, which I, re, which I relearned from you, by the way, Catherine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we just don't think about it. You know, we, we don't really think you know, we listen to Schoolhouse Rock and we think mm-hmm. it's all set up and we kind of just assume that it's in the Constitution. I mean, when we bring it up and say, well, the Constitution is really short, so it couldn't possibly all be in there. We're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Good point. And yet we just assume that things are the way they are. And one of the messages in our book is, hey, they don't have to be this way. It's up to us. Uh, one one final question on the final five voting. Are there any other countries doing this around the globe with success? Final five voting has these two pieces to it, which is a top five primary and then ranked choice voting in the general election. Ranked choice voting is actually pretty popular outside of the United States. It's, I don't believe, particularly helpful to draw a comparison 
or to look at another country's system and say, oh, this one works great or doesn't work great and and make that applicable to the United States. Because so many of the places where they used ranked choice voting are parliamentary systems uh, and they they also often have uh, multi-member districts. So I no time to get into that here, but let us say that ranked choice voting does make people more satisfied with their government. What we need to do is look at what they've done elsewhere, but then figure out how that interacts with our constitution and our particular structure of government and make sure that no matter how things work in another country, we can understand the dynamics at play, you know, in given the United States Constitution. I want to, I want to respect your time, Catherine. Just a couple of final questions. How, how is the business community, especially other CEOs uh, that you talk to, how, how are they, how are they receiving your message? I mean, the, again, these are great ideas. To me, they're common sense, but of your fellow business colleagues, what are they saying? Yeah. Uh, I actually think these things are common sense too. As proud as I am of the work, I actually take it as a compliment that we can say they're common sense. And by the way, I hope I didn't. I hope that wasn't an insult. I mean, no, it's fantastic. I think it's the ultimate compliment. Okay, okay. Someone uh, criticized me on LinkedIn the other day, essentially saying these things are just common sense, and you know they're sort of not complex enough. And I thought, well, wow, if we want to make the solution harder then don't come to this book. Um, No, it is common sense. It's something that many of us have not, that doesn't mean it's not complex. And it's something that many of us are not going to uh, figure out on our own because we're making just too many assumptions and because we're too busy. So long story short, how, how is the business community receiving this? It's fantastic. I can't speak so much to how the book is being received, but I can speak to how the message is being received because we've spoken, uh, to thousands of people, Michael Porter and I, over the last several years. And here's the reaction. Essentially, people come up after and they say two things. They say, one, oh my goodness, this is so clear. I can't believe I never thought about it before. Thank you for showing me how it worked. But then the second thing they say is, but even more important, thank you for telling us what we can do about it. Thank you for having a solution. Because people are so tired of commentary that doesn't leave us with anything actionable. Sometimes there's commentary plus hope, but that's not good enough, particularly for the business community. We want commentary plus a plan that we can deliver on. And that's what we do in our book, The Politics Industry. Clarity and no rhetoric. That, that's really what I should have said. And by the, so I take back my comments. I, I want to say what they just said. Uh, brilliant. Hey, what about mainstream media? So we, we just had the passing of Hugh Downs. I, I was a huge Hugh Downs fan, mm. uh, such a class act. Uh, and that made me think of Tim Russert. Uh, what would, I mean, again, this is, we're speculating, but what would Tim have to have, what would he have said about your message and ideas? And my, my and again, my gut says he would have been impressed. Uh, thoughts about that? Well, that is a fascinating question. So my gut says that Tim Russert would like these ideas. He, I agree. I mean, and, but here's what I'll tell you. He was great. Absolutely. 
And he's part of what we call the political industrial complex. Agree. Which doesn't mean just because you're in the political industrial complex, it doesn't mean you're bad, but it means that your livelihood is tied up in this system. And one of the things we find is that people in the political industrial complex aren't listening very well to this message. They can't see something different than what they've been seeing their whole lives. So we talk about, it's like water to the fish. And we talk about that story in the book. So for people in the political industrial complex, they basically don't really see their surrounding as clearly. And so uh, that's something I would say, for example, to the people listening to this, if you have contact, a relationship with anybody who's in the political industrial complex, do try to get them to pay attention to this. And they will eventually. And some of them absolutely do. And, and those that do will basically say, yes, this is how it works. But a lot of people just say, oh, that's another crazy book. I mean, they just don't even have any time for thinking that it could be different. They're caught up in the drama of each election cycle. And, and so the challenge is, how can we get them to look at the ideas and then we'll see what they have to say, but we don't really even get there yet. There's no way I can let you go without asking you about reading. I know you're a voracious reading. I've done some reading up, done my homework on you, Catherine. Um, I think in one of your interviews, I could vaguely make out, I could have sworn it was a Cal Newport book. Now I could be wrong, but, uh, what are some of your favorite books? What do you like to read these days? Uh, maybe some books have stuck out, maybe books you've gifted. Um, I I'm curious. So thank you, Mark. I actually, I, I know exactly. You saw deep work. The, yeah. Because it's got that yellow cover uh, with you can't, the dark yeah, I, title. I, I've read that book three times, by the way. Great work. I love his work. I love, love, love his work. And sometimes what I do for interviews is I put specific books behind there. Interesting. Uh, that maybe some people might recognize who might be watching that because it's so fun for me. I wish I could, you know, sort of have these have books from 50 people uh, visible at all times. In any case, uh, what do I like to read? So I will tell you that here's some of the books that I would put up behind me if I thought people were interested in what was on my bookshelf. I would put up certainly the Cal Newport, anything by Cal Newport, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Love that book. If you haven't, have you read that one? I love it. Love it. Okay. That's amazing. Constraints liberate. Fantastic. I would put up FOMO, Fear of Missing Out by Patrick McGinnis. He's the one who originally created the term FOMO. Have not in an read that. At Harvard Business School. Have you read that one? Have not. Have not. Oh, you've got to check that it's, one out. It's on my list. It's on my list. Fan- okay, fantastic. I got to see if I can find something that's not on your list. And then I would say, uh, Principles by Ray Dalio, which you've probably already looked at. That was at. a long. Now, I. I'm smiling as I say I've read it. It took me about a month to read it. Uh, he could have made that easily two books. There, that is a lot. I mean, there's there's a depth. There, I mean, that's a well. I mean, that's that's almost like three persons' lives. That, that I mean, that it's kind of like a reference book mm-hmm. more than a book. 
Uh, I think I think he could have written the first part of it as a standalone, but the the, the basic principles themselves are just outstanding. And and I also like the, I mean, it wasn't a true autobiography, but there are some uh, sketches of, of his personal life mm. that was really good. But again, it did take me a while to get through it. Um, he also, yeah, he, it, well, I was just going to, he also came out with about a year within the last year. There's a visual, it's a paperback and I just have it. Uh, so the principles, I've got the Kindle, but this other book that com- that came out within the last six, seven months, you want to get the physical copy, but it's a visual, the visual of principles and highly recommended. Yeah, I have to get that. I haven't gotten that yet. And then he has, I think his app is out now. It helps you got use it. this, um, you know, these decision-making criteria in your organization. So that's, it's so fascinating. I, we should live longer and get to read all these books. Exactly. Okay. A a couple more things. So for health, anything by Dr. Mark Hyman, I recommend. That's, and by the way, uh, I tweeted uh, you, I think this weekend, I heard you do that interview. That one was outstanding. I don't know why that one resonated, but great interview. And then it led me to want to read. So he's an author. He may have more than one book, but there's one that he had propped up behind him on the interview with you. And uh, yep, so I'm, probably his newest, he writes books the way some of us read books. Okay. He's prolific. So, uh, but he, great work by him. And then let's just do a couple things on uh, politics. Uh, so here are my four picks on politics. Okay. Which is, again, these aren't partisan. These are just really insightful takes on what's wrong or what we should do. I just love them. Okay, first, Parties Versus the People by Mickey Edwards. Yes. That's the one that gave, you know, gave me my first light bulb moment. The Centrist Manifesto by Charlie Whelan. That is a short read. You can absolutely read that in one sitting. You don't have to be a centrist to find his insight, humor, rationality, and clarity just really compelling. It really shows us how badly we're failing at being rational it's fantastic. I just love it. Okay. And then breaking the two party doom loop, which is a real political scientist expert take on, on the history and the, and again, the, uh, the real political scientist expertise about our system that, that is part of the work that, you know, I do in my book, but uh, from, let's just say, a real political scientist, and that's by Lee Drutman. And then finally, Declaration of Independence, mm. meaning independence as in D-E-N-T-S. So those people are not Democrats and Republicans, but are independents. And that's by Greg Orman, and he ran as an independent for Senate in Kansas and later for governor. And he's the kind of candidate, the kind of thinker, the kind of leader that our existing system with the spoiler problem really doesn't give the same chance to succeed. And if we had people like Greg Orman, you know, not face that particular barrier to entry, we would have a lot different capabilities and a lot different results in our Congress. Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Love knowing you. I'll be, I'll be uh, ordering more on Amazon now because of you. Well, Bruce, as a result of that discussion, I'm giving you one 
homework assignment. So I get, see, I get to push you around a little bit. I've got a little bit of age on you, right? Maybe, maybe at least a couple of years, maybe. Um, so your homework is I want you to read Washington's farewell address. And when I did the interview, I said I was going to do it tonight. Well, tonight was yesterday. And, of course, yesterday, uh, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, I will have already heard it. But I am actually looking forward to reading that myself. But, anyway, great interview. That's your homework assignment. And um, are you, I'm holding – I think you need to read this book. I don't think you've read it yet, so I'm holding you to it. So, so I, will, uh, I will definitely read the book. Um, I will – um, I will check out Washington's uh, farewell address. It's uh, and actually over the uh, over the weekend we watched Hamilton again. So it's so it's te- you know what is it teaching him how to say goodbye. So that's uh, it's 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 a top of mind right now. So I will uh, I will take on both of those challenges. All right, I'm going to say goodbye, and so uh, I'll let you wrap this thing up, sir. All right, Mark. Well, I'm glad we're uh, I'm glad we're back uh, we're back on the air again. Uh, have a great rest of the week of upcoming weekend. Everybody out there, continue to stay safe. Continue to love. Show each other empathy, and we will talk to you again soon. Hi, everyone. This is Brian Jones of the Table Group and the author of Ordinary Greatness, available wherever fine books are sold. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf. I do not let seven days go by without listening to this podcast.